It is from Colossians. Colossians 1, 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossa, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understand, understood God's grace. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear and fellow student, uh, dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Amen. Thanks. So, uh, before we hop into the message today, I just wanted to say two things. Uh, the first is that our uh, Back to School Sunday, we were thinking about calling it uh, Church Attendance Debt Forgiveness Day. For those people who have skipped a couple, uh, skipped a couple Sundays uh, during the summer, uh, you can come back and there's no issues, right? We can all just walk into church and it's going to be fine. All right, so that's, what, so that's one thing I wanted to make mention of that day. But the other thing is that we will be receiving an offering that day for, uh, that will go directly to uh, Chi Alpha, which is our ministry on the uh, University of Northern Iowa campus. Um, uh, and we, we just want to bless them. So just be thinking of that as we get closer to that day. We want to yearly take up an offering for Chi Alpha to, uh, to bless them and ena- enable their ministry on the campus to how many students? How many students at UNI? 12,000 students. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of stinky kids, right? No, they're wonderful kids. They will, they're not junior hires. They know how to, anyways. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why that came out of my mouth. The second thing, uh, the second thing I just wanted to say was we did go on a men's uh, camping and canoe trip yesterday, Friday, and uh, most of Saturday. My, te- my canoe did not tip. Everybody else's did, I think, right? So that. Dick and Steve's didn't. I am the best canoeer, though. <laughs> just so you know. We had a really good time. It, it was a really great trip, and it's a really easy trip because it's just up to Decora and back. And so uh, we're going to do that every year coming up. So uh, just if you miss this year, uh, we'd love to have you next year. That'll be, it was a lot of fun. Nobody got hurt except for people who got sunburnt. I'm looking at you back there, Grant. All right. Well, uh, this week we're beginning a new series. Uh, If you have your bulletin, you know that. Uh, And this series will take us all the way through the rest of the summer. We'll start a new series on Back to School Sunday on August 27th. But until then, uh, I really wanted to set up shop in the book of Colossians for the next couple of weeks. Um, And we're calling this series Jesus Over Religion. Uh, It's important uh, 
so it's important that as a group, as a church, as a, as a group of people here in this room, uh, that we study the scriptures together, that we look deeply at the actual Bible, right? That's what you're like, yes, that's exactly why I came to church, to look at the Bible with all of you. But it's important that we do that, that we, that we be God's people gathered around the scriptures, gathered around the text, gathered around God's special communication to his people. You see, we have the Bible, and you probably have a physical one in your hand. There's a physical one in the seat uh, in front of you if you reach underneath if you don't have one. Um, if you don't have a physical copy, you most likely have one on your phone, and if you don't have one on your phone, you can download it in 10 seconds, right, if you want. The, the Bible is a ubiquitous thing in our day and age, and this is a very good thing. Everyone has a Bible, but until the invention of the printing press, people didn't have Bibles, did they? And they came to church partly as a way of gathering around the scriptures together. Maybe you had a family Bible that stayed in your home and you could read it, but by and large, that is if you could read, right? Because that was also up in the air back in the day. So when people came to church, when people came, uh, when they gathered together around the scriptures, what they were doing was very important. It was vital for them. And in our day, we all carry around our own Bibles, very often in our pockets, and the, the value of gathering around the scriptures, of, of sitting together with one another, of, of opening the scriptures, of looking at them, of studying them together is something that we don't take as seriously in our day and age simply because of the ubiquity of the scriptures. Does this make sense? And, because, and this isn't a bad thing. We, it's good that we all have Bibles and it's good that we can all read the scriptures. But it, it does do this thing where we, where we begin to... Uh, we begin to devalue just a little bit what it means to come together, to meet together as the church, and to open the scriptures together. And when we do that, to ask this very uh, powerful and interesting question, what might the Spirit of God be saying to us through these ancient texts, through these ancient scriptures, through the Bible? Now, admittedly, you are being led in this endeavor of, of opening the scriptures and thinking about them together by the pastor, the preacher, right? You're listening to a sermon. But I will tell you that each sermon, each message, each time we open the scriptures together, it's supposed to be the beginning of a conversation between ourselves and God, right? Between us as individuals and God, but also between each other. I don't want the, the preaching of the word or the communication of the truths that are found in Scripture to ever be this thing that's just a simple one-way communication that's just from the stage or from our, you know, a foot-high platform on the floor to you. It, ha it, sh it can and should be this conversation that's happening within the context of our community that's rolling around in your head, that's a conversation between you and God. It's my hope that as we crack open the scriptures together, it's the beginning of a powerful work of God's spirit in the heart of our community. So I say all that to say, uh, don't stop at the hearing of the word of God. Yes, listen and try not to fall asleep. I would appreciate that. But try with God's help and to the best of your ability to have these messages that I give and that we, we look at together to, begin, to be the beginning of something in your hearts, not just something that ends the second you walk out the doors. The book of James, in, in the book of James, James instructs his uh, 
the people to whom he is writing, that they are to be people who don't just hear the word and then move past it, but to, in some real and true sense, be people who hear the word and then do or uh, allow the word to take up root in them and then have uh, effects in the way in which they act and live. He says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. Chew on it, right? Uh, Live with it. Allow it to have its impact on you. And in truth, the way that this happens and the way, that we, uh, the way that we do that is to open the scriptures together and to go on a journey together. And uh, you can imagine if we open the scriptures every week uh, that that, um, that builds in us a kind of uh, holy anticipation for what the Spirit of God might be saying to us. Because if, we, if we're Christians in this place, if we believe that God is active in the midst of our lives, then when we open the scriptures together, we also believe that something powerful takes place there and that God longs to impact us, to change us, and to transform us. And this is part of the reason why we are going through a book, why we are sitting with uh, the scriptures in a more detailed way Yes, it's important to understand, uh, it's really good to understand the, the setting and the context and the words of the Bible, to work to understand uh, the nuances of what the first hearers of these scriptures uh, thought and understood when they heard them, to see uh, why for thousands of years Christians have valued these words so deeply, to understand that within the pages of scripture rests the words of God and that these words are helpful to teach us, to give us wise counsel, to help us live better lives. But they are also there to help us simply, very simply, just follow Jesus well. And so, for the remainder of the summer, I wanted to sit in Colossians. And I, I wanted to open the scriptures over and over together for, you know, six or seven weeks. And, and, and go on a bit of a journey together as we, as we discover this kind of obscure New Testament book. This book that uh, very often we kind of pass over. It's most certainly one of the more obscure of Paul's letters. Uh, and really delve into it and really see what, the, what Jesus might have to say to us through it. So... Uh, today, what we're going to do is kind of, what I hope to do is kind of orient us around the book a little bit so that uh, in, in the next couple of weeks, we can have uh, a little bit of context for what we're actually talking about as we, as we dive into the book of Colossians. So, uh, Colossians happens to be one of my favorite books. Uh, if you were here at the very beginning when Ashley and I first came, our very first series um, of that we did as pastors at this church, uh, the very first message was out of the book of the Colo- book of Colossians, and we'll kind of be rehashing some of that material next week. But um, but it's, it happens to be one of my favorite books, and uh, Paul is the primary author of this book. Paul is the primary author author of uh, most, not most, but a large chunk of the New Testament. Most of the letters that are written. That's other than, the, other than the Gospels and Acts. Paul is the author of most of those books. And Paul is writing, in all of his letters, he's writing to churches or people living in Asia Minor or kind of Eastern Europe, um, Italy and southern, Southeastern Europe, basically. And he, so within the kind of corpus of the books that Paul wrote, he wrote big theological works, big kind of dense theological tomes like the book of Romans. And then he also wrote really uh, personally touching relational letters like First and Second Timothy. 
in Philemon. Most of the letters that Paul wrote to churches, he had uh, he wrote to churches that he had planted or to people that he had raised up in the faith. But Colossians is really interesting because it's slightly unique within the letters of Paul in that it is, uh, it is written to a church that it is clear, Paul actually says it in the passage that was read for us today, that he did not plant this church. And actually, he had not even been to Colossae. Paul has never been to the church that he's writing to. You see, Colossians is, uh, is a book written... Uh, and is commonly referred to as one of Paul's prison epistles, meaning Paul was in prison, literally, in chains, when he wrote this letter. He says it at the top uh, of the book. At the time of this writing, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but Paul was in prison for proclaiming that Jesus is his Lord. Many scholars believe that he was in prison at Rome in this, at this time, so um, he had gone to Rome to preach the gospel, and they had thrown him in prison because of that. And he's writing back to churches in Asia Minor, what is um, modern-day Turkey, essentially, to encourage them and, and uplift them while he is in chains. But what is interesting, uh, but what we, you have to understand about prison in this time, what's really interesting about prison in the Roman world was that it wasn't like prison in our world. You didn't have cable. He was really upset about that, too. Uh, you actually weren't provided anything. So the government didn't provide resource for you to survive in prison. You had to have friends that would come and provide for your well-being. So one of Paul's friends that comes to him is this guy named Epaphras. And he mentions Epaphras in verse 7. And in verse 7, Paul makes it clear that it was actually Epaphras who planted the church in Colossae. And Epaphras... Uh, upon visiting Paul in prison and being there to provide for his needs, told him some things or about some issues that were facing the Colossian church. And Paul, being stirred by what Epaphras tells him, decides that he's going to write a letter to this church. Colossae, the city in which uh, this church resided, was probably the most insignificant city the in, most insignificant Roman city that Paul ever wrote to. There was a time when Colossae was a large kind of metropolitan city, but uh, at the time of Paul's writing, it had, it had kind of shrunk. There were two other cities that were close to it, Roman cities in kind of central Turkey, essentially. Um, one of them was Laodicea, a city that we hear about in Scripture other places, and the other one was, a, was another city that we don't really hear about. But both of those cities were within walking distance. Laodicea was only about 10 miles from Colossae, and it was quite, uh, quite a bit bigger and quite a bit more influential. Yet, it is to uh, this church at Colossae that Paul writes this message. He's right, and he, the other thing that's important to remember here is that he's not writing to a large church. He's not writing to an influential church. He's probably writing to a house church. He's probably writing to a group of people smaller than the number of people that we have in this room today. Epaphras uh, is mentioned other times in scriptures, but he's not mentioned as being a particular uh, anybody who started a very large church movement. And so to understand the setting and the context of, what, of who Paul is writing to is very important here because Paul writes an entire book of the Bible to a group of people who aren't that large and aren't that influential. Yet within this letter, Paul says some of the most incredible things about Jesus. 
He says some of the most uh, incredible and stirring things about the nature of what it means to follow Jesus well. You see, you could say that Paul's words were wasted on this group of, I don't know how many Christians in this smallish Roman city in Asia Minor. But the words that he wrote to them have been used by God to influence people for 2,000 years. And so it's good that as we open these scriptures today, that we, uh, that we understand and see ourselves in the light of what Paul is saying to the Colossian church. Now, we're calling this series Jesus Over Religion, which sounds like a funny title for a series a little bit, doesn't it? Because we're Christians, and that's a religion, correct? A world religion. Because one of the, uh, but we're calling it that because one of the main issues uh, that Paul speaks about in Colossians is this idea that uh, Jesus, or following Jesus, runs against the grain of many of the things that we think are appropriate within religion, or what it means to be a religious person. And the key passage for understanding what Paul is saying, and he brings this theme up over and over and over again in Colossians, is found in chapter 2, verse 8. And he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world, rather than on Christ. So that no one takes you captive uh, to deceptive philosophy based on human tradition. Now, we will hop into this this particular passage a little bit more in a couple of weeks and really uh, break it down. But But it's really, really important to understand this idea that Paul is driving at in this book to really understand what he is trying to communicate to the Colossian church. What Paul is doing here is addressing a set of practices or religious rules that he believes are inappropriate or unnecessary. So he's addressing religious um, practices or rules, regulations that he believes, Paul believes, are unnecessary, that the church ought not to be taking part in. Not necessarily because they they are in and of themselves evil things to do. He sometimes calls these religious activities the Colossian philosophy. If if you read through the book and you see that phrase, at other times he refers to them just as teachings or the teachings throughout the book. But what we know from the context of what Paul is saying is that the religious environment to which he is writing is a pretty complex one. Unlike our current climate, this is a joke, where, sorry, is, is a joke still funny if you completely preface it by saying this is a joke? And I should finish the joke and then we'll know, right? Uh, in our current religious climate, uh, uh, in, sorry, that, see, I just skewered the joke because I went off script. Uh, unlike our current religious climate, everyone was religious, was what I was going to say. In our, in, our religi- in our current climate, everyone is religious also, just for the record. But there were very specific and interesting religious um, things going on in the world of Paul. And Paul is addressing two primary religious misunderstandings that the church, that the, that the actual Colossian church have allowed themselves, uh, has allowed to seep into their, their life as followers of Jesus. Okay, so there's, there's two things that he's really addressing here, and he addresses them multiple times in the book, but I'm just going to break, break them down for us a little bit so that we can understand what it is exactly Paul is addressing. The first 
is an influence that is being brought into the church by Jewish Christians. By Jewish Christians. Now, the first converts to Jesus were Jewish, correct. Uh, And uh, these Jewish converts or people who began to follow Jesus had this really interesting time early in the life of the church trying to figure out how much of their Judaism they were going to bring into this new faith of following Jesus. So you read about this, this tension between um, the new covenant or, or what it means to follow Jesus and the tension that exists as a, as a Jewish follower of Jesus. They, they struggled with this, and Paul talks about it quite a bit in his letters. It was a real problem facing the early church. But what's happening in Col- uh, Colossae and what's happening in a lot of other cities uh, in the Greco-Roman world at this time is that Jewish Christians who follow Jesus are still trying to follow the old covenant. They're still trying to follow the old rules and laws and regulations and are telling, and what they're actually telling new converts or Gentiles, non-Jewish people, is that in order to be a good follower of Jesus, you then need to follow the Old Testament law. Does this make sense? And so these Jewish Christians who are still trying to kind of figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and be Jewish are then taking those Jewish rules and regulations and they're putting them on top of Gentiles who were never Jewish in the first place. Does this make sense? And so this is one of the things that is happening in the church. And Paul disagrees with it, right? He doesn't want them doing this uh, to these Gentile believers. He doesn't like this teaching kind of seeping its way into the church at Colossae. Now, the second religious problem that Paul addresses is slightly similar, and it's a little hard to suss out in the text at times, Um, but it's pretty clear that Paul is addressing uh, the ways and some of the ways in which pagan religion, and by pagan, I don't, I just mean uh, uh, non-Christian, essentially, religion has found its way into uh, the church. Different teachings about the ways in which uh, you are to uh, gain knowledge or learn about God, have found their ways into the, into the church a little bit and are um, messing things up. And Paul wants to address that. So during this time, the time to which Paul is writing, there were numerous religions, but many of them had this emphasis on what they called hidden wisdom. So there were these, there were these cults of hidden wisdom, all right? And uh, they, uh, they, were, they would seek after what they called gnosis in Greek or knowledge, in, is just the translation in English. This is where we get the word Gnostic, if you've ever heard that word. You have uh, Gnostic uh, people who believe that, this, that in order to get closer to God, you had to, uh, you had to acquire this kind of secret knowledge. And, a, and, a pers- and in order to gain this gnosis, this knowledge, a person had to carry out relig- uh, rigorous religious practices of self-denial. And some of the things they did don't, don't sound that crazy to us, but they were uh, things like fasting, um, just the denial of self, the eating of certain types of foods, um, uh, taking certain ritualistic baths. Just There were a lot of hoops that one had to jump through in order to get into these kind of secret societies where they believed this hidden knowledge uh, resided. An example of this is found in a book called uh, The Metamorphosis. It's written by a guy named Apleius. And in this book, he talks about all of the different types of things that a follower 
of uh, one of these cults had to do in order to gain the secret knowledge. And they had to, like, abstain from certain foods. And they had to wear very specific clothing. They couldn't wear their own clothing. They had to wear very specific religious clothing. And they had to take ritualistic baths. And they had to carry out these different rituals. And every time they did one of these, one of, went through one of these kind of religious trials of sorts, it was believed that they would kind of ascend the ladder of spirituality. Does this make sense? That they would, they would, take, they would take another rung up higher on what, um, on in their knowledge or their spiritual power or something of that nature. So this was a common uh, way of thinking in Paul's day. Now you can probably see the issue here. Christians influenced by these other religious ideas may be tempted to believe that there are uh, these progressive or higher truths or this uh, greater depth of knowledge that one must attain in order to get close to God or to ascend the spiritual ladder. Or they may believe, based on uh, what the Jewish Christians in their midst are telling them, that they, uh, that they are supposed to observe pro- the, pro- the, pro- the appropriate Jewish holidays and remain kosher in order to follow Jesus well. And Paul totally disagrees with both of these worldviews, right? He's addressing both of these things kind of at the same time in the book of Colossians. He says that the heart of the Christian faith is not found in religious practice or observing specific religious laws like Jewish Christians were arguing. Rather, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6, very simply, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now walk in him. Now walk in him. You have received him and now live that life. In short, Paul says you don't need all the rigorous accoutrements or the religious accoutrements. Those are add-ons or accoutrements are like fun little things to eat, right? Around, yeah, anyways. Uh, No, that's not, we don't say that word in church. Anyways, um, sorry. Wow, that was inappropriate. Uh, uh, you don't need all of these things added on, right? You don't need all of these uh, extra religious practices in order to follow Jesus well. Paul says specifically to the church that they have been made new in Christ, and their inheritance is all the f- of all the fullness and knowledge of God has been made available and put on display in the person of Jesus, specifically in this beautiful hymn that we'll look at closely next week that begins in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. All of the knowledge you need dwells in Jesus. There is nothing hidden. There is no further level that you need to ascend. It is all there in the person of Jesus. And now everything we do in all the ways we live must be centered around uh, Uh, must not be centered around gaining uh, more mysterious knowledge or earning more favor because Jesus has been revealed. So you have received Christ Jesus. Now walk in him. Now live that life, right? But our effort, the effort that we put forth must not be about uh, ascending the ladder in, in a sense, but it should be about putting forth effort of living the way that Jesus lived 
of representing him well, of putting on his character and purposes. And what, I'll ask you this, not a rhetorical question, I'm actually asking, uh, what is the central defining characteristic of Jesus? Love, right? Love. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul says this very thing when he says, and above all of these, put on love, right? Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul does not want followers of Jesus spending all of their time trying to figure out how to become more spiritual. Let me say that again, because I mean it, and I think Paul means it in, the, in, this, in this text too. The point of Christianity is not to become more spiritual in some vague sense. It is to become like Jesus, who was the living embodiment of God's love on the earth. And you know that the Colossians were getting confused about this. They really were. They were beginning to think that Christianity was more about jumping through hoops to gain religious favor instead of about learning how to love God and love people and live into the new world that was begun by Jesus when he rose from the dead. Now, uh, that is a temptation for us as well, isn't it? In our day, we put up all kinds of things that one must do or not, must not do in order, uh, in order to follow Jesus, right? We, we build all of these kind of fences around what it means to follow Jesus. We construct all of these kind of religious things around following Jesus. We create, we create rules and regulations too. You know, one of the most common forms of this in our day is turning our faith or trust in the relationship with Jesus into a kind of superstition. Uh, when I was working in Des Moines, when I was a pastor in Des Moines, I was a pastor at a large church that was on a main drag, uh, Merle Hay Road, if any of you are familiar with Des Moines. And one of my responsibilities there was to be on Thursdays and sometimes Wednesdays. I was the on-call pastor. And what the on-call pastor did was uh, that pastor was uh, available for anybody who walked in off the streets, who needed assistance. They might need prayer. They might need gas money. They might need help. We had a food pantry and things of that nature. So it was fairly common that people would come in and ask for assistance. And it was uh, my responsibility on most Wednesdays and Thursdays to be this pastor, to, to help people, to pray with people, to, to be the on-call pastor. Uh, and my Thursdays, primarily my Thursdays, were incredibly interesting. <laughs> I have most of my best stories come from Thursdays uh, pastoring off of Merle Hay Road. And this one particular day, a lady walked into the church, and they usually walked into the receptionist, and I got a phone call in my office, and they said, um, "Somebody, oh, there's a lady down here who wants to see you. So I walked down. And I walked down, and there's a lady sitting there, and she says, Pastor, do you have any of that anointing oil? And I said, yeah, I have anointing oil. And she said, can I have some? <laughs> and I, yeah, I said, sure. So I walked back to my office and I got some anointing oil. And the anointing oil I had actually uh, came from Israel because uh, we, we had a pastor who was a friend of mine there and he would get us little gifts and he would give us anointing oil from Israel. It was just, it was a fun little thing. And so I gave, uh, I gave this bottle of anointing oil to her and she got so excited. Like, like over the moon excited. And she said, oh, pastor, that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. 
which made me feel a little bit like a drug dealer. <laughs> but, but I gave it to her anyways. Uh, uh, I, I, and I gave her the anointing all that day, and she left, and she's a perfectly nice lady. Uh, but she, she started coming back, right? She came back like two or three more times, always asking for anointing oil, and every time I would give it to her, because it's, you know, it's olive oil, people. Uh, and uh, she would go, oh, pastor, you always, you always have the good stuff. You always have the good stuff. And I was like, yes, I do, I think. I think I actually do. I understand this now. She, you see what she did there, though, right? Uh, she turned something that in the Bible, an oil or the oil of anointing, is simply a symbolic thing, right? Anointing oil is not mysterious. It's not magical. It's just symbolic of God's love and blessing. It's symbolic of his presence. And in the New Testament, when we're told uh, that when we pray for somebody to put oil on their head, it's just, it's just a reminder, right? It's just something that we do physically to remind people that God is there, that he's present with them. It's, it, but this lady turned it into a type of superstition, right? She believed that the power wasn't resident in God, that the power was in some way, shape, or form resident in the actual olive oil, right? And we do this. We, we, we make the religious practices kind of superstitious, right? We, we endow things or practices or um, activities with power when in actuality they don't have them. We do this with all types of religious things. We really do. Uh, maybe, you've, maybe you've seen people who have done this with fasting, like the biblical practice of fasting. And they don't fast in order to remind themselves that they are primarily dependent on God and not on food, right? Which is, which is a biblical way of fasting, just to, just to remind yourself that, oh, I don't always need food. I, I can, I, the, my primary, the primary food of my life is the presence of God or my relationship with God. But instead, people begin to view fasting uh, like some spiritual exercise that if I do it long enough will elevate me to this higher spiritual plane, or maybe I'll have some weird vision, right? Or I'll have some ecstatic uh, spiritual experience. And that you might have an ecstatic spiritual experience, but it might be caused by your low blood sugar. <laughs> so we can't, we can't be real accurate about that. But we, we make these religious practices into, we make these, what, are, what can be helpful practices, right? that help to teach us about what we actually uh, help us to love God better, help us to focus on Jesus. We turn them into these superstitious activities. And people even turn prayer into a superstitious activity. We, we, we can do this with prayer. Have you ever met anybody who, if they don't pray for their food or if they forget to pray for one of their children that day, they're super, they get super nervous that they're going to get food poisoning or that something horrible is going to befall their family? Like, like the prayer itself is the thing and it's not about the relationship with God? Does this make sense? That we turn prayer into this kind of superstitious thing, don't we? Because uh, we are, as humans, innately religious. We, we want to be superstitious. We want to be religious. And we want to turn the, the following of Jesus or the, uh, the life lived in relationship with him into these, this kind of series of superstitious practices that we just need to get all of the steps right. And if I get the steps right, then okay, everything will be right in my life. 
This is religion, right? This is, this, is the, this is the seedbed of every religion that's ever existed in the entirety of the world. And humans are prone to this. This is the type of thing we do. And this is the idea that Paul is railing against in this text. And we see it, this, I, this same idea that Paul tries to bring up elsewhere in the Bible. James, the brother of Jesus in James 1, says this, Religion right, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. So if you want to be religious about something, right, be religious about taking care of people. Be religious about loving people. But don't put all of your eggs in, in some religious basket, believing that uh, if you do these things, like if you just, you know, if you say enough prayers and walk around in a circle three times, that the, everything is just going to happen for you the way it's supposed to. And this is not what the Christian life is about. It really is not. Now, prayer and fasting, along with other spiritual disciplines, are not bad. The, just the, the spiritual rhythms of our lives are not bad things. Um, observing uh, religious holidays in and of themselves are not bad things. Um, Jesus prayed. Jesus fasted. Jesus observed religious holidays. He carried out religious rituals. Jesus himself instituted communion and baptism as centrally important religious acts for Christians. But anytime we turn spiritual disciplines or religious activities into ends in themselves, we miss the point entirely. Uh, a really helpful book on this and a book that a lot of people in this room has re have read is a book by a guy named John Ortberg called The Me I Want to Be. It orients us. Uh, we're reading it in our discipleship groups, uh, if you're in a men's or women's discipleship group. But um, it's a really helpful book that helps us to kind of understand uh, how Christians are supposed to uh, orient themselves around Jesus and grow into the person that God had created them to be in a healthy way. So if you want to read a book about that, that um, and one of the things I love about Ortberg's book is he removes all the superstition from the process of what it means to follow Jesus and be one of his disciples. It's a really, really beautiful book, and I highly recommend it. Uh, but anytime we take some of these religious practices uh, that may by themselves be good things, right, that may help us in some way, shape, or form, and we, we make them an end in ourselves, or, or we, 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 we make them something that they were never intended to be, we miss the main point. And the main point, the main, the main goal, the main thrust of the Christian life is loving Jesus and loving our neighbor, right? This is, this is the main thrust of what it means to be a Christian, and we can even do this kind of religious thing with the scriptures themselves. Because the main point of being a Christian is not to read the Bible. The main point of being a Christian is to know Jesus. Just, and sometimes we can make the Bible even this kind of religious talisman. Have you ever been around anybody that's always talking about the fresh revelation they just got? Right? I don't know if this is funny for you, but it is for me. Uh, uh, I hear people say things like, oh, Nick, God just gave me a fresh re revelation into that passage that you shared. And I'd be like, oh, really? What, about what? And it'll be like about nothing that's actually in the text itself. Like God is uh, really mysterious and he's hiding things in the scriptures, right? 
that he's, that he's hiding them from us. And what we really need is this deeper spiritual knowledge, and then we got to go dig it up and find it, right? It's always the deeper meaning people who show up in your small group, and uh, whenever you share about some insight that God gave you personally from the text, they're always like, oh, no, brother, I got a, deep, I got a deeper meaning in that text, right? God really revealed some deep or spiritual truth that you don't have access to because you're not as spiritual as me, right? This happens all the time. Uh, we, we make the Bible into this, uh, this thing. And I just want to say, there is no secret code in the Bible that if you, if you can de- decipher it, will tell you w- what the date of the end of the world is. That's not the point. It's not in there. So stop looking. If you're doing that, if, actually, if you're doing that, just come talk to me after church. We can have a conversation. Uh, but there is no, uh, there is no uh, truly hidden truth in the Scriptures. Paul says at the very beginning of Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus in his death and resurrection is what God ultimately has to say about the universe, about the world. And the full, and he even says the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And everything we see in Jesus is a reflection of the God that we serve. And there's no need, Paul says, to keep digging, to keep trying to find deeper stuff. What Paul says we are called to do is to be about the business of learning to love like Jesus loved and learning to get rid of the stuff in our hearts that doesn't look like him. And Paul says essentially, that's enough. There's enough work to be done there on our own hearts and our own minds and learning to love other people the way Jesus did and learning to love God well. There's enough there. You don't need to go digging for any more secret knowledge because the fullness of God, the fullness of God's presence, the all of the knowledge that you need is resident in the person of Jesus. It's all there. And too often, I think, in Christ, even in Christian circles, we have exchanged the life that is available to us through being connected to Jesus for kind of superstitious activity, right? Just these little Christian practices that we feel like we need to carry out in order to be uh, more wise or more holy, when in actuality, the very life of God is available to us through relationship with Jesus. And rather than attending to the most important thing, we have given ourselves over into little, kitschy, even, religious practices. John. You see, Jesus will always trump religion. Jesus will always trump religion And maybe you're in this place today and you're caught up in a web of religious expectation. Maybe you were brought up in a tradition or by parents that said in order to please God, uh, you had to do all of these certain things and live this certain way and, I don't know, maybe wear these certain clothes. Uh, And you've been carrying a kind of religious burden on your shoulders for years because of this. You probably even love Jesus, but you still feel the weight of that kind of religious expectation on your shoulders. 
Or maybe you're here and you know in your heart you have turned a relationship with Jesus into superstition. You're probably not uh, trying to go make back alley deals for anointing oil. But you've turned things into superstition. Maybe you've become so obsessed with the book of Revelation, trying to find out what, what, what's going to happen, that you've neglected your relationship with Jesus. Maybe uh, it is insecurity or an over-obsession or preoccupation with uh, prayer, even. Maybe it's an obsession with weird kind of obscure things in the Bible like angels. People do this, right? We get, we get caught off thinking about things other than Jesus. And maybe today you just want to say, I want to I reorient my faith more around the person of Jesus. I want to reorient my life around him. I'm not going to invest all of this time and religious energy and insecurity and all of these practices or all of these things or all of this religious pressure that I felt on my shoulders for the majority of my life. Instead, I'm going to learn to love and follow Jesus. And I'm not going to turn it into a religious activity. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in the relationship that is available to me through the person and in the person of Jesus. You know, as Christians, I would love it if we majored in the majors, right? If we majored in the majors and we learned to follow Jesus, to love him well, to grow in love for other people, and to learn how to step into the people that God created us to be. To major in the majors. Now, this reorientation in our lives around the person of Jesus has all kinds of implications, right? And it works its way out into all different facets of life. It really does. And so it's not always the most simple thing in the world. But if we remain connected to the source, to the head, to Jesus, if we, if we uh, fight this urge to uh, make our faith and our relationship with him just kind of a superstitious activity, if we fight the urge to make it simply religious practice, like going to church is just this thing I do in order to be good, right? rather than it's this thing I do in order to meet with Christ's body, right? If we stay connected to God in that way, we will do what Paul says to the Colossian church, that we won't be dragged aside by philosophies or wisdom or uh, desires for deeper, deeper knowledge, but we will instead be the people that God has called us to be. So today, I just wanted to pray for us, to provide us with a little bit of time, just a, a couple moments of reflection, to say, God, is there anything in my life that I've been, that I've been superstitious about? Is there anything in my life that I've been over, overly religious about? And do I need to kind of reorient myself back to the center of what it means to just follow you well? To just, I, I, I identify with the person of Jesus Christ, you know, this, this crucified and resurrected Lord. And I pin my hopes on him, not on a bunch of things that I need to do in order to please him. Does this make sense? So as Jocelyn's going to play, we're not going to sing. I just, uh, just a moment of reflection, I think, this morning. An opportunity to just say, God, what, what would you have me to do?
how would you have me to reorient myself around you? And then after that, uh, I'll come up and pray. Amen. We know we're prone to making uh, this life of being one of your disciples, one of your followers, into something that maybe you didn't intend it to be. And so today, God, we ask that you would help us to step away from uh, religious practices that we think, that we thought would actually make us well, but in actuality are distracting us from the one thing that's important, which is our connection to you. And so today, God, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to reorient, to shift our lives around the person of Jesus that, that we... Uh, that we wouldn't uh, put all kinds of footnotes underneath what it means to follow you, but rather, Jesus, that we would just follow you, that we would accept you as Lord, and then we would walk in that, and then we would walk in that. Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would help us to be about the business of loving you and other people more. Would you change and transform our hearts to be hearts that look more like yours. And would you help us to be a community of people, a community of people who look like Jesus. We pray all of this in your name, in your name. Amen and amen. Amen. We'll go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.